and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performance Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible conversation with a really thought-provoking guest. I am so excited to share her with you. But before we get to her, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. So we do one-on-one coaching, we do group experiences over Zoom or in person, and we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of these essential skills. And one of the strong skills that we are so passionate about teaching is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from the framework in the book that I wrote in October of 2020, where we talk about the mindset for preparation and the mindset for performance and actually how they are different and how you can support yourself as a performer by leaning in to the mindset of preparation and the mindset of performance. And if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And you can even listen. You can get more of me in your ears to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased. And I truly have been overwhelmed by the support. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks again to all of you who continue to support me, who continue to support the podcast, the book. I can't tell you how much you mean to me. So even though I can't see you, I hope you know that you are appreciated. Now to today's guest, Joanne McCauley is a legendary basketball coach. She was two times the ACC Coach of the Year in 2010-2012. She was a Big Ten Coach of the Year in 2005. She was a three-time American East Coach of the Year in 1995, 1996, 1999. She has a resume, a basketball resume, that is incredible, including in 2005 winning the AP Coach of the Year. She won 
It's about so much more than basketball. So Joanne decided to retire from basketball, and she has been an advocate and really been courageous in sharing her sto- her story around mental health and bipolar. In this conversation, we talk about suicide. This is a deep, enriching conversation, and this is a conversation that I just think we have to have. The reality is mental health, suicide, depression, anxiety, it doesn't, disc- it doesn't discriminate. It can hit any of us. It can hit all of us, our children, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our friends. And I love how open Joanne is about sharing her story and also how she could have so much success while dealing with some of these challenges. And so I find her to be heroic, courageous, vulnerable, inspiring. And we get into it in this conversation. We go deep into her own maybe insecurities about sharing all that she's learned and her willingness to put herself out there and to really make sure that she continues to make the impact that she knows. And I know in her heart of heart, she knows she can make a massive impact. So this is a wide ranging conversation. Once again, it's a deep, mature conversation. And I know you're going to get a lot out of learning from Joanne as I did. So here is Joanne or I should call her Coach P, because she goes by Coach P. So I'm going to say, here is Coach P. Coach, great to have you on the podcast. I love calling people Coach. Hopefully you like being called Coach. Yes. And uh, look, we're, we're in some time still where people are dealing with mental health. Certainly over the last two years with the pandemic, we've seen some, some tough stuff. Um, so I'm actually excited to talk to you. Uh, I know this, there might be some dark stuff in this conversation, but I'm really excited because these are conversations that are so needed. So mm-hmm. excitement might be the wrong word, but, uh, I get excited over needed conversations. And when I asked you, Hey coach, what do you, what are you really passionate about talking about? You said, you know, having dialogue around suicide. And so I figured let's, let's start there. Um, can you talk about your perspective, on suicide and and mm-hmm. let's just let's just start there. Um, yeah, Brian, it's good to dive. I think right into it, uh, given many events that have occurred over the past year, and talking about suicide is a good thing, uh, regardless of to, you know how it is strange. I think getting a comfortability of knowing how complicated it is. Um, from my perspective, I can only speak, I'm not a medical expert, you know, I'm not a doctor. I don't profess to be a therapist or anything like that. I'm a coach, coach P for life. That's who I am. But in sharing my own experience in the book, um, in secret warrior, I talk about a time in my life where I, it's not like you say, I think I'll commit suicide. That's not how it works. It's like, I could do other things like swim across a lake and just keep swimming. Like you start to, you know, envision anything that might take you out of pain. And so um, I can't relate, I can't speak for anybody um, out there who's having those thoughts or families that have gone through it. I can't speak for that. I can only say, one thing I like to say is that despite having children or having a family, the survivors many times say, how could this person do this? And the response I would give 
in my experience, the person isn't thinking anything about people and not in a selfish way, in a, there, there's so much hurt. So if you take the pain and the hurt and you think about it as this incredible blanket, you know, around a person, they can't see through that blanket to the other, of I have a great mom, a great dad, a great life. Like, you know, so that whole concept, I think when people sometimes say, how could they? And the answer is with enough pain and enough suffering and the inability to see through the blanket, it happens obviously. And one of my um, issues is I was older when I had these thoughts, older, meaning I had children. And although you have a blanket, I will say for me, my children, you know, I could see my children, do you know what I mean? And, and for others, uh, young people, you know, 25 years old or whatever, they don't have, you know, they haven't had those experiences for the most part. And so the isolation, the isolation becomes worse and worse. And that blanket begins to tighten and, and, and sort of store that hurt around the person. And again, this is only my description. Okay. I'm not, again, I'm not a doctor. I always have to tread carefully with this but I'm explaining from my perspective what happens. And then of course, action can be taken and it is taken. And that's how I would explain it. We had Dr. Mark Colston on the podcast who studies suicide uh, and spends a lot of time trying to understand it. And the word that he uses that he says, most people that attempt suicide uses despair. And that's the word. And as I hear you talk about pain, it's just getting this place of despair. Mm -hmm. And that's always sort of stuck with me, that word. Um, yeah, I think, I think despair is a wonderful word. And for those of us that are diagnosed, as you know, um, I have manic depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, and that's 5% of the population pretty much. Um, but if you, ex you know, if you extend the spectrum, when I speak, I speak of the whole spectrum, you know, anxiety, depression, because there's kind of a fusing of a lot of these things. It's very fluid. There's a continuum. And of course, in our society today, almost one out of two people are struggling with this kind of thing um, with, with some elements on the continuum. From my experience, despair is exactly the word. And for me, it was despair in the sense of, I can't live like this anymore in terms of managing my own mental health disorder. Instead of it just being a part of me, which it is, it's just a part. There's many parts to me, but at the time it was, I saw it as me. It was me, all of me. And anyone who takes that approach and says, it's all of me, my anxiety, or my depression, um, anytime the all of me thing comes, that, that's very dangerous. And one thing I speak about is whatever you're going through, whatever adversity, whether it's a diagnosis or not, you know, this too shall pass and it is not 
all of you, you know, put it in, uh, put it in a, a place and put it in its own little box in a place. And there's so much of you. That's so, so many other things that you offer. It's so interesting because you worked in college athletics for a number of years. And when I work with college athletes, one of the biggest challenges they face is most of them, when they graduate college, that's the first time where their identity of being an athlete gets stripped or, or taken away their whole life. If they're a soccer player, um, I'm, I'm Jackie and I'm a soccer player. It, they kind of go hand in hand. And so decoupling their sport from their identity is often a challenge for a lot of them as they transition into the quote unquote real world. As you're saying, all of me, as it relates to mental health and saying that this is a part of me, it's not lost on me that you also got to spend a lot of time with college athletes. And I'm sure a lot of them came back and I'm sure a lot of them called you when they were in the real world and talking about challenges that they were facing by not bouncing a ball anymore, perhaps. Can you talk about identity as it relates to the athletic experience? And even for yourself, you decided to walk away from basketball. So I'm curious about identity as it relates to sports and how it's not necessarily all of somebody. Absolutely true. And I think that it's a really difficult time, not only for graduating student athletes that go into, quote, the real world, but also anybody who goes to college and cannot continue their high school sport. So they lose it in high school. The identity's lost back in high school. So there's lots of places that we can lose our identities relative to sport or anything else for that matter. Just After real that, quick, real quick on that. In eighth grade, my, my transition to high school, I lost a lot of my sport identity. Basketball is my sport of choice. I was a mm-hmm. small scrawny kid. I wasn't that athletic. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone else grew and got big and strong. And it just wasn't there for me in high school was a challenge for me in a lot of ways because my whole life up until high school, I was seen as an athlete and it was hard for me to navigate that identity. And actually college was a new opportunity to think of myself more so than just in the sports realm. Um, So I agree. I think it can happen to all of us at different times, even professionals when they retire from whatever it is Mm -hmm. that they do for a living struggle with what is, who am I? uh, And that question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you put it on a timeline, you know, go backwards, and this could be a concert violinist. I mean, we're talking sports here, but this could be a lot of different things, okay? (laughs) You know, uh, what people do, and you go back to high school, and you see identity could be lost. You go into college, then you've got to reset yourself, reboot, identity established and lost. And then, of course, like my players, they graduate. Many of them play professionally. And so identity is continued for them. A lot of WNBA players coming out of Duke. So I can't say that they automatically hit that place. Uh, Many of them that I coached for years at Duke still are playing pro. What I can say is those who have had to realize where they are, yes, that's a struggle for them. And they've had to make that shift. And sometimes it can be so much worse for others. And then if you bring it a step further, uh, you mentioned my situation there's something that's not in the book. Okay, there's sort of another story that sits next to my book, um, Secret Warrior. I'm not sure what I would call that, call it, you know, Secret Warrior, not continued, but I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, but when I left Duke on July 1st, 2020, I stepped away and was pretty healthy. You know, July was great, August was great, trying to step away. And 
the identity thing hadn't hit at all. I, I was busy, you know, just kind of, I guess, stepping away from coaching. You go into September and I have a cancer scare and get a hysterectomy. Okay, so that's no fun. Get that done. And then October 18th, a month after my hysterectomy, my father dies. And so handling all that and trying to measure all that emotionally with our family and my father, it was definitely the daddy daughter, you know, relationship. And so then you say, well, how'd you do through Christmas? I did well, meaning my mental health, my strength, all of it. Um, as I work into January, February, March, I'm, I'm battling this whole idea that you're talking about. I'm battling identity. Where do I belong? What am I? Um, People don't return your calls as quickly. If you're, you know, the Duke coach, you know, so was I Duke? Was Duke me? Like what, like what was it? I mean, I coached for 28 years. Uh, you reflect back about Duke, you reflect backwards. You, you do a lot of reflecting backwards. And the reason why I say that is it can be very unhealthy. Even though you've got glory days of championships, final four, whatever, you tend to reflect backwards on the negative and ruminate a little bit and wonder. And so take it all the way to June, June of 2021. I had my worst episode ever. And if you read the book, Secret Warrior, I cover two episodes, both at the University of Maine. And then I have this massive period of time, 24 years coaching at Michigan State, coaching at Duke, where I don't have an issue. I mean, I have a kidney issue at Duke, um, a physical issue, but I don't have any you know, episodes or anything of the sort. And I coach for all those years. At one point, my husband said to me, I mean, and we both discussed it, like maybe you're actually not bipolar or have bipolar disorder. And sure, wow, I figured out really quick <laughs> that, um, in fact, yes, I still had it, had it, quote. And um, in June, I spent 12 days in a hospital. If you can believe it. What's so interesting about that, I, I told you before we started recording that to prepare for this conversation, I listened to your conversation with Michael Gervais. Mm -hmm. And we were both sort of admiring Michael and the work that he does. And in listening to that, I think it was in April of 2021 or it was before June. You know, it's yes. like, a, like, here you are, you're courageous. You're talking about mental health and you're putting yourself out there and you're making yourself vulnerable. And then, you know, a few months later, you're, you're, you're going through what you said, you know, the worst episode you've had. So can you explain to people how that can happen? I'm sure getting on Mike's podcast was probably a highlight for you. It, it was probably a pretty amazing experience. Um, and then, you know, a few months later, you're, you're going through a real tough time. What were, what was that like for you? Well, that, you know, I can't say enough about Michael Gervais as well. Um, mastery, the whole thing, that part, you know, was a saving grace to me having podcasts, being able to talk about mental health and impairment and helping people and explaining a, a point of view that was different, you know, coming from a coach and having that perspective. So that was a really healthy thing. What I stumbled on, what I truly stumbled on was the relationships lost in my career that were attached to me being a coach. 
And I'm talking about mentorship. I'm not talking, I mean, I love my student athletes. I love all of them, all of them. And for the most part, I'm sure the love is returned. I'm sure there are a few that, I don't know. <laughs> it depends on circumstance. You know, 28 years is a long time and I'm certainly not perfect, nor are they. So you, you never know, but that's, that's kind of a fun sidebar. Um, but I just feel like I, and I just lost my train of thought. Yeah, you were talking about mentorship and and, and how you. you had that. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just had these, you know, relationships and they just went away. You know, it, not um, malicious or anything, just things drift away. You, you drift. It's like, yes, it's like being out to sea. And you just start drifting away from things that you've had for 28 years. And it's just a natural evolution. Again, it's a natural thing. But for me, I don't, I didn't anticipate that. I didn't, I just didn't. I mean, a lot of people talked about walking away from coaching and practices and the players. Oh yeah, that's, that's super hard. Okay. That's super hard. But I anticipated that, you know, I just didn't anticipate my life changing. And the fact that my identity, my identity, coach P at Duke, at Michigan state, you know, at Maine was sort of wrapped up. Now I'm still coach P for life because that's along the mental health advocacy route, but it, it's a conclusion. And there's, you know, you have the crescendo, you know, you have the crescendo of it all. And then there's the calm and the irony of it for me was I was on vacation. Now, Brian, this is a very important concept to share. Many people think that stress, which it does, like, like having too much to do could cause bad things. I would argue, well, that's true in many instances, but being busy and productivity, productivity makes for happiness. Productivity makes for happiness. And so if anyone is feeling non-productive and sort of non-loved, you know, mentors or whatever, then that can really affect, I think, your, your feelings about life. So when I was in Michigan on vacation, it settled into me that it was all over. It, meaning the 28 years, the connections, the mentors, it was sort of all over. And that was brutal. That, that was what happened. What have you done since then to be productive? Oh, well, well, I was being productive, right? <laughs> well, but the way I had heard, the way I had heard it was that part of the thought for you was that you weren't being productive. Maybe I well, heard it wrong. Well, mine was a lot about loss. Okay. You have to remember lost my dad. Okay, so I lost my father, I lost mentors, and I had a cancer scare, and I lost body parts. Okay, so mine was a lot about loss. Okay. Okay, I was very productive, meaning, like you said, Mike Gervais, like we were, you know, being on GMA, Robin Roberts, there had been a lot of productivity, but what I'm saying, that's important in life, you have to have it, and I had it, but I had all these other issues behind it. And overall, if we're talking to, about people in general, I think productivity is not a word that is used. And of course, now I'm what I would call hyper-productive relative to the speak, the talks I'm giving on campuses, the corporate talks. 
uh, signing a, a contract as a speaker, things like that. So now I'm, I've made the transfer into my new life, but more importantly, I've, the grief that I've been holding and the anxiety with those losses, I'm getting over it. It's finally, it's finally turning, which is really amazing because I would be two years out of Duke, August, I'm sorry, July, 2022. You talked Two about years. you talked about pain. You talk about physical pain, health scares, uh, dad passing, dealing with mania. Mm -hmm. What's your relationship with pain today? If you were to say how how do I handle pain? Um, that's a great question. Uh, emotional pain. I can handle physical pain very well because I'm an athlete and we go through a lot of pain <laughs> and as a coach as well. Um, I think that my coaching and my ability to compartmentalize is very helpful. I think I've been trained in a way to try to manage emotions and access them at the times I need to. Um, I have a therapist who's fabulous to help me deal with pain. So I'm not alone. And I would tell people to never go alone with pain. You know, I have a great family, obviously, uh, you know, a husband, kids and all that kind of thing. And, you know, I think that, and then grieving is a process and you just can't get around it. I and mean, it's different for everybody too. Everyone yeah. does it differently. It's waves, right? It's waves. It comes and goes, it surprises you at times. I hear, I hear a Barry Manilow song my dad's favorite, you know, and I, I break down crying and I've actually been able to start singing the song. You know, you can, you can kind of evaluate grief in small little things, like little things. And Barry Manilow and my dad go together. Initially, I couldn't, you know, come near that any songs. And I finally am at the point where I can sing them and I sing them to my dad. So you know, when they come on the radio and stuff, I, I don't have Barry Mantle actually on my phone. Well, actually I do. I have my dad's playlist. Uh, I have a dad, dad playlist, but um, I think that you have to understand that grief is personal, as you say, but the smallest things it can connote progress, like progress to feel better. I want to go back to basketball coaching specifically for a minute here, because I think about this podcast, we've done 270 episodes. We've had on Muffin McGraw. We've had on Jessica Kern. We've had on Adele Harris. Um, we've had on Jay Wright. Um, what all those people have in common, Becky Burley, uh, they all left their sport earlier than they had to. No, no one was like kicking them out of their positions. Um, as head coaches, they were all head coaches. Becky was at Florida with the soccer team. Muffin McGraw is a legendary basketball coach at Notre Dame. Jay Wright just, you know, retired and people were shocked. Obviously in Duke, Coach K retired. And I know different ages and different times, but we're, we're seeing, at least from my perspective, over the last few years, a lot of head coaches in, in a position like you were in decide to walk away. Um, from coaching specifically in, in college athletics. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts on that are, I compliment everybody, you know, for carving their path, you know, what works for them. I know that what Coach K has done 
I mean, the years that he has put in, the 44 years, I mean, I strongly believe that that will never happen again. Uh, coaching has changed and so much has changed about coaching and it's a noble profession. And I can't speak for others, but for me personally, I could see the changes coming down the pike relative to the transfer portal and relative to um, NIL, image and likeness. Now, I'm all for student athletes. I want them to get good things. I want good things to happen. Um, I'm a stickler for the transfer portal. I, I can't comprehend that, that you could just leave a school and then play in the same conference. There's no penalty. There's no anything to make someone think. You used to have to sit out a year and that would actually make people, you know, they, they view that as a penalty. Well, at some point you have to be loyal to where you you know, to where you chose to go, unless the coach leaves. I mean, I'm thinking you could have a clause if the coach leaves. Okay. But I just, I'm not very popular apparently with that thought. I think the transfer portal is a nightmare. I think it's going to ruin the game if it's not handled. I mean, more properly, the fact that you can't develop people for four years. I can, I can't tell you how many student athletes after their sophomore year talked to me were disgruntled not getting what they wanted and wanted to transfer probably, probably a fair amount. And I was able to say to them, let's regroup and look at this. And then as juniors and seniors, they were stars, loved everything. Like you can't, you don't go through the process anymore of that, that conflict that is, is definitely there when coaches have a future image of a player that might be greater than the player. And there's that friction that can occur. And you know, I'm an, I'm an Italian coach, passionate coach, you know, and I, you know, I, I demand excellence from young women and, and, and yes, you can be tough on them. Um, you know, you pick your places. I was really tough on my team in the film room. I mean, let's face it. If there was a loose ball, you know, and somebody didn't run after it. I had a lot to say about that a lot. So, but on the court, you know, in game time, you know, you're supporting your team. I always said that we're in the bunker together during a game, like we're in the bunker together. In practice, um, it's not the same bunker often. You're preparing for that opportunity to play because, because there's, if you have a standard that you're trying to lift people up to, I mean, lift them up, then usually it's really, really hard. And so now what you're having, coaches are afraid to coach. They're afraid to coach. If they're too hard or demanding, there's a transfer portal. Like there's an easy way out. The grass is always greener. And so, I mean, I can think back to some teams I've had that, you know, had that you had to really push them because there were no All-Americans on the team. Let's say there were no All-Americans. Well, you had to really drive those teams hard to be a team. And boy, I'm sure I ticked off a team. My final four teams in the sense of my Michigan State team that went for national championship and my Duke team that was three points away from the final four, led by Jasmine Thomas, those two teams didn't have All-Americans. And later they did, don't get me wrong, they were named All-Americans because of how well they did. Um, but my point is you have to demand and you can't demand anymore. So you know, it's, it's awful. I mean, I just, I watch it and I watch the portal and I just say, anyway, getting back to your original question, I knew my time. I knew I wanted to write the book. I've been holding that information for 26 years. 
around your, around your mental health. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. yeah. It was a private, right. I couldn't share it because it would never work being a coach, negative recruiting, all of that. Okay. So, so I've been holding it for a long, long time. Is that still true? Do you think, do you think if a coach came out, uh, and, and was open as you have been and still continue to coach that it wouldn't work? I think that it's still to this day, uh, the, the stigma is attached. I think that we live in a society uh, where many people are afraid and are not going to always, you know, educate. So if I'm an athletic director, I'm not going to take any chances. It's a risk for them as, as far as how they see it. Yeah. And there's a lot of CYA. There's a lot of that going on instead of, you know, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. Let's make sure everything's right. You know, the, the vision, the vision element is not as much in my opinion, the vision, you know, having even the way I was recruited from Maine to Michigan state or Michigan state to Duke. Okay. Even the way I was recruited as a coach is, has changed. Okay. It's not personal anymore. There are those wonderful search committees um, that search firms or whatever, um, that's not the way it was done in my day. My, I was personally recruited to each school that, that I coached at. Do you still have the itch to coach? And when I say coach, I mean, I mean, basketball coach, cause I know you're, you're coach B for life, but do you ever <laughs> wake up some mornings and say, gosh, I just want to get in the gym and, and get to work. It's funny you say that. And the answer is yes, of course, absolutely. And I just came back from Tennessee tech, wonderful people where I did a, a keynote and these things, uh, meetings and, and talks during the day, but Kim Rosamond, the coach there is so confident and brilliant and all these things. She said, take my team, talk to them and coach them. And I got to do that for about an hour and 15 minutes. And I have to tell you, Brian, I was in heaven. It was, it was very special. Kim gave me a great gift. She's a fabulous coach, uh, you know, really at the top of their league, um, uh, fighting with Belmont, right at the top there, Tennessee Tech and Belmont. And um, anyway, I just, of course, I miss, I miss those things. And I don't, I won't be going back. I have too much now. Too much is happening. You know, contracts signed and things I've got to do with speaking and getting out there. I, I could never go back. And when there's even, you know, suicides occurring, with collegiate folks and student athletes, how could I ever go back? I what are you, what are you getting from this work that you might not get from coaching a basketball team? Uh, direct, direct conversation with really difficult things. And they, it's, it's life or death. I mean, what I'm saying, I had a call from a, a football player and he got my number. Cause I don't remember, remember I'm not a medical expert and I'm not a doctor. Okay. So I don't profess any of that. Coach, want- coach, why not? Why not go that route? Why not say, Hey, I'm going to go become a therapist or a psychiatrist or like, why not go the sort of formal route? Okay. I, I think there are those professions, you know, need to be elevated in our society, right? Psychiatry is like, surgery of the brain without seeing the brain. Surgeons in our world are highly esteemed, highly paid. Psychiatrists are paid at the bottom of the pay scale. 
And therapists, it depends, right? It depends on what they're, what's going on. I just don't see that as my space. And I don't see I have time to do that. Uh, meaning this is urgent right now. And I feel like coaching is very different. And the example I'll give you is this example I was saying, this, this, this football player called me and he was cleared to talk to me by his family. And meaning again, that I'm not a medical professional, but he said to me, I wanna to talk to you, Coach P. And I said, okay, well, you know, what's going on? He was very um, adamant. And he said, I, I've been diagnosed with bipolar and I don't want it. Mm. And, I said, and I said, excuse me, what do you mean you don't want it? He said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing this. And I said, okay. And I said, what kind of, I said, no, I know what I said. I said, um, you're a football player. Yeah, I'm a football player. I said, you must be, you must have been a bad football player. You must not have been very good. And he got very, what? I was a player, you know, I was a player. I said, no, you weren't. You must've been one of those people to finish last in the sprints. And then coach couldn't count on you in, in a time and score. You know, and he's just getting, <laughs> he's like, you obviously don't know me. And I said, no, apparently I do because, you know, quitting is part of your repertoire. That's what you do. And like I said, that's coach P that's, I come from a different space. And he, and he's like, okay, okay. You know, he said, so tell me about it. And I said, tell you about what? Being bipolar. <laughs> and I was like, I hope you, you know that 5% of the brilliant population are bipolar. And he said, what do you mean by that? You know, and I said, I said, you realize you have to have a really, you're, you're really smart. I, I don't know if you know this, Brian, but bipolar folks are really smart. Um, very creative, Van Gogh. I mean, there's many. We can, very creative thinkers, very, you know, connect the dots kind of people. The other one that's fast is dyslexia. I mean, because yeah. in our in our schools, people with dyslexia tend to struggle academically. I had a client once, he was a baseball player, and and I actually, he was a college athlete, and I was watching him take notes. He would take such great notes while we were talking, and I'm looking over, and he's just, I can see he's struggling, spelling very basic words. And I said to him, I was like, have you ever been tested? And he had gone through a great public school, county, same county I grew up in and gone on to college and no one had ever noticed it. And so I went through and started doing research on all the dyslexic talented people. And I'm like, cause he was freaked out. He thought he was dumb because he was dyslexic. And by the way, he thought he was dumb because he struggled academically um, because he was dyslexic. And upside of that was he developed this crazy work ethic to make up for this challenge that he didn't realize he even had. So he now has this amazing work ethic. And then he realizes, that, oh, I just think differently and I see things differently. And he just finished like top of his class in law school because he now is aware and acknowledges it. And so anyway, I, sorry to interject, but no, yes, you're, it's perfect interjection. And, and that's what young people don't know. They can't see past it. They can't see that blanket. They can't see past it. And this gentleman ends up anyway, this gentleman decides he wants to call me now and again, you know, like, will you be my friend? Cause I, I, I told him, I said, I'm phone a friend. I'm not phone a therapist. I'm not phone a doctor. And I, and obviously I know where to send people. Right. I mean, if they were, well, if he was, you know, in, in a space that I thought I would send them to appropriate places. But um, so anyway, this guy, 
<laughs> he goes on to your point. Brilliancy is what he's doing. And then he runs the Boston Marathon. I mean, <laughs> and, I'm like, and, I, and I called him like later, you know, later in time, I called him and said, so what is your deal? You know, meaning because of how incredible he was doing. And I think that the phone a friend thing, as I would put it, the phone a coach. Brian, what I wish I had, I know podcasts are huge, I get that. What I wish I had was a radio show where people could call in anonymously, parents, you know, anybody, kids, whatever. The old radio show thought where you could call in and I could answer questions. It could be, you know, ask the coach, phone the coach, because I think that I'm old school and I love radio, right? I always, I love radio. And so those are the kinds of things I think we need. What's, we getting, need. what's getting in the way of you doing that? Um, probably somebody taking the lead. I, I, when you talk about Team Secret Warrior, it's me, um, my agent, my agent, and now my agency. You see, <laughs> and so I can't do it all. I mean, I can't, I can't, I need somebody. I should be doing a Raleigh market. Yeah, give you an example. I should be. I should be going to Raleigh at some radio station doing a show and, and, and I should be probably, I could do it with a co-host, right? Do it with somebody or do it alone, whatever. But that's what, that should be something I'm doing. I'm not doing that, but it, maybe that will come. If you called coach P and said, Hey, coach P, I should be on the radio, um, you know, uh, and have a call line where people can call in and we discuss their mental health and I'm open with my mental health. What would coach P say to you about that? Coach P? Wait. Yeah. What would you say to yourself? Oh, if you were, I- <laughs> yeah. Put on your coach P. Cause you went into coach P mode earlier as you were talking about the, yeah, the, the football player. I heard coach P come out and you're right. It does sound different than a therapist. Uh, I I've been in therapy before. I have many friends who are therapists. My uncle is a psychotherapist. Yeah. Actually, my uncle's an interesting one because he's pretty blunt and he gets right to the point. He's probably more coach P as a therapist, but that's a whole different story for another day. But yeah, you've got, you know, you've got your coach, your basketball coach, right? And that is a part of, that's a part of you. It's not all of you. And so like, to me, I'm hearing a lot of excuses. Well, you know, I've got my agent, I got this, Da, 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 da. I'm like, what are you talking about? You could easily have a radio show tomorrow if you wanted to, but who's coaching you? Who's telling you, hey, Coach P, get your head out of your ass. Like, go, go start the damn radio show. <laughs> I think there's something, okay, there's this bad thing too, that this is bad thing that happens is you want, because I was so spoiled for so many years, right? 28 years of having administrative assistance, sports information, marketing, uh, all the things that come with big time athletics. I mean, I was fortunate, blessed, had it all. I think there's a part of you that wants someone to approach you. I think that is a problem because, you know, you go out there and you, you say, look, I've done 28 years, Coach P, somebody have this vision. Like you're, you're, almost, you're almost praying that somebody else is gonna have the vision and say, by the way, just like being recruited, just like being recruited as I was a head coach. And that actually happened with my agency. (laughs) They recruited me. And so of course it was so wonderful to sit on the other side. Um, But to your point, I probably need to have at it. 
and get it done. Yeah. Cause you're not, <laughs> you're, you're in a world of entrepreneurship now. Right. And, and like, you have to kind of go find opportunities and make them happen. Now I have a call with someone on Thursday in Raleigh. So I'm about to ask him, Hey, who do you know that has a radio station yeah. down in North Carolina? So it just might happen because I might just try to knock some walls down and, okay, and wait, but wait, happen. and this is yeah. timeout here. I'm going to call timeout. You can call timeout. Your coach. Go ahead. Okay, coach. call on timeout. The other issue is self promotion, mental health awareness, mental health impairment is so incredibly difficult that I'm in a tough spot because I don't want to self promote. And what I I feel I have to get out there with many people is the foundation that I want to establish secret warrior for brain health foundation. Now people say, is it established? No, I don't have enough money to establish it. And I'm not going to use my personal money until I die. Okay. And so the reality is I want it to be a standalone foundation that comes from my work. And so when I tell people that I don't take a salary and that I'm doing this work and bringing it in, of course, they say, oh, you see, I mean, they, they go, oh, then it's okay then. You see what I'm saying? They, people, you've got to be careful with this whole entrepreneurship of mental health. I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with that. I, you can't sell souls. Does that make sense? Yes. And What's I think your answer? <laughs> well, my and is first of all, you sound like every nonprofit CEO that I've ever spoken to or worked with. And, you know, they have this challenge that they run into where a lot of them get into the work because they want to help people and they have an organization and they start their nonprofit. And it's not about making money. If they wanted to make money, they would have gone to Wall Street. Okay. Yes. And if you want to have a sustainable nonprofit, you're going to have to draw a livable wage. And by the way, you're going to have to pay other people livable wages. And so yes. nonprofit owners and operators run into this issue all the time because what ends up happening is they're not paying great wages. And those brilliant, smart people are then leaving to go work for a consulting firm. And we need to reshape, in my opinion, how we think about this work. You can earn a great living while changing the world and making it better. Like it's same with our teachers. It's like our teachers should be making a good living while impacting our youngest people um, and, and our precious people. And so I don't see it as an or. I understand what you're saying is I have to tread lightly. I don't want this to be about self promotion. I want it to be about the mission of helping people with their mm -hmm. mental health. But mm -hmm. I think you can do that while still being on a mission to change the world. Um, and, and so like, that would be my, if I'm coaching you, I'm like, all right, let's go to work on it. Because if you really want to destigmatize this thing, you're doing it. You're, you're coming out into the light. You're writing a book. You're on this podcast with me. That's a step, but there's more steps that we can, we can still take. And I, to me, I, I struggled with self-promotion for a long, long time. I was like, I don't, I don't care about being famous. I don't have any desire to be. I still agree with that. But a lot of people challenged me and said, yeah, but Brian, do you want to make an impact? Do you want to have an influence? And I said, yeah, that would feel really fulfilling to me. That would feel really purposeful. That would feel really productive to use the word earlier. And so to hold my talent back is to do a disservice to serving and helping others. So you have talent, you have a background, you have a platform that can really, that leads to this football player calling you when maybe they're not calling someone else who has had your same struggles. 
there's an, there's a massive opportunity for you to do good. And I think as long as it comes from the heart, there's always going to be people that look at you and think that you're doing something nefarious or something wrong, but that's the same thing with anyone that changes the world in any way. No one likes everybody. Like Elon Musk just bought bought Twitter and half of Twitter thinks he's the devil and half the Twitter thinks he's a savior and neither are true. Um, So I'm going off on a tangent, but my challenge to you is like, yes, step into it in a way that's authentic to you. That's genuine to you. That still is in service to the mission that you're all about. Oh, Brian, I tell you what, that, that wonderful, I guess I'll call it. There's a rant. No, 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 no. That was a motivational soliloquy. No, no, that was, um, I can't tell you how much I needed to hear that. I'm going to have to, when I get this podcast and you send it to me, I'm going to have to replay that because you frame something that I'm not familiar with when we talk about nonprofits, like you framed it for me. And I, I do pay my agent, by the way. Yes, I pay out. I pay money out. And you try to cover your costs or whatever. Um, but yes, I do have huge dreams. I want a million dollars for the foundation. I want a million dollars. And I want that foundation to be able to pass year to year to year. And I want my, 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 young, my children to be able to be a part of that as much as they you know, want to or can. And so the dream big element is really there. But what you're saying to me is don't tiptoe you know, don't tiptoe your way to that dream. So that is wonderful advice. And I take that heartfelt. And because I, you know, I, I do feel I should be on every campus. I, I, when, I, when I walked off that campus at Tennessee Tech or Mississippi State where I've been, and others that I've been and being able to see those faces and people come up to me. I mean, there was, I've had twice people come up to me saying, I was going to do it, but I'm not going to do it. I mean, what do you say to that? You know, I mean, when we talked about impact, you said, would you go back to coaching? I can't. I mean, how could I ever go back to coaching? And of course I was coach P at that time. And that, that person, I, you know, hugged him and said, you, you better take care of business. You know what I mean? There wasn't tears. There was like, you got this, boom, chest bump. Boom. We got it, let's go. And you better, you better contact me and you, you know, whatever. And there's a lot of that, you can't chest bump your way to somebody not doing something, but here's what you can do, I think. If somebody's, if somebody's going to do such a thing and take their life, it's very hard to stop them. I'm gonna tell you that right now. It's, it's hard to stop them. It's a very aggressive act. People need to be able to say that. It's a very aggressive act to do that, right? I mean, it's aggressive act to kill a human being. I don't care who they, it's an aggressive act that needs to be talked about more. And then on top of it, can we derail kids? It's like derailing them. If they're on a train, can we take them off their path for long enough for somebody else to derail? So it's not anybody, no, no one's standing up and saying, okay, we can stop suicide. We can prevent it. Okay, that's why I don't like the prevent suicide thing. You can't, you cannot prevent it. But boy, and I know what they mean, they kind of mean the same thing, but that prevents a very strong word there, right? It's, you can derail. So the individuals that came up to me after talks, I can say to them, you're awesome. You know, think about it. And I can ask them, you know, I can say, what made you, what, you know, what got you to say that? I can say a lot of things to them, but then they walk off over campus and then somebody else makes contact in some way. So it, 
so it snowballs in the right direction. And you know this because you've been on college campuses. I've worked with multiple athletic departments. The counseling centers at every university in this country are underwater. And, and so to your point, there is a huge need. And we all know college age kids really start, a lot of them start experiencing these types of challenges. Um, you know, on, on a college campus, you add on a pandemic, you add on social issues that are going on in our society. Like there's a, a serious cocktail there. Yes. Yes. Oh, can I add one thing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, on many campuses, the students and student athletes are very separate, as you know. One of the coolest things at, at Tech, at Tennessee Tech, was they blended them. And again, mental health should be celebrated. Mental health impairment should be respected. And it does not discriminate. So I, I saw a crossing of groups that generally may not cross in that way as I spoke about mental health, mental health impairment and took the questions. And so that's when I speak, I, I encourage the vice president of student affairs to connect with the athletic department and to do things that are not done normally. It's usually separate, like here are the students and here are the student athletes. And you can do both on campus. Like you can, you can bring them together for like a convocation type thing. And then you can separate them for more intimacy in the discussion. I want to just go into the sport piece because you said something earlier that caught my attention. You said, as a coach, I learned how to compartmentalize my emotions and I learned how to leverage this emotion here and this emotion there. And I think about, I work with a lot of military people that came from the military and now they're in the business world. And and we've had a lot of conversations over the years about how the military, they learn how to sort of um, control their emotions or, you know, not act emotionally and how that could help them at war, but how it can hurt them in relationships um, back home. As you think about sports coaching, is there a dark side to how we set sports up as it relates to health, mental health? Is there any downside or dark side that exists within athletics, maybe even coaching? Is there anything that you've reflected on or or thought about, given that you were an athlete for a lot of years and a a coach for a lot of years? I think, um, I don't know if it's a dark side. It's a reality. You win, you lose, the ups, the downs. By nature, by nature, it's a very emotional up and down world. And the higher you get, the higher level. I coached in the triangle, which is a pretty high level uh, competition with Duke and the others. Um, you know, the pressure is on. You know, you know, you got to win. You got to win or you're out, basically. And so from a coaching perspective, you know, you learn to understand those things and you get very thick skin, very thick skin. Now, the student athletes, I mean, they're student athletes. OK, so they're young and and they're impressionable and learning and they're in a very different spot. So, so we're paid to take the hits, so to speak. I've taken many in my life. Um, you get lots of praise, but you get lots of, lots of hits. But the student athletes, I mean, with this social media stuff, they're getting, somebody misses free throws and then they're getting bombarded with ridiculous things. So it's an over, you know, it's an overdue in ways that we can't comprehend now because of social media. And so now that the dark side is that 
incredible access people think they have and that right people think they have to go after somebody who's 20 years old and start talking about, I'm gonna kill you because you missed the free throws. And so the world that we're in now is, this, this whole mental health thing, this whole thing about brain health is gonna go for a long time. Because yes, the pandemic, absolutely, part, huge part, we know that. But it's, it's gonna roll forever with the student athlete and what's happening with social media. And frankly, the non-student athlete as well, who is you know, um, bullied and things like that on social. So we're in a whole new world. We're in a whole new world. And the world's been going for a while, but it's getting worse and worse relative to what people will do. Um, and that's scary. So there is definitely dark sides, I guess, in that regard. I love what you said earlier, where you said, you know, coaching is a part of me, but it's not all of me. And then we've got, you know, bipolar is a part of me. It's not all of me. And I think for all of us, like you and I both consider ourselves to be coaches mm -hmm. and that's a part of me, but it's not all of me. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's just an, I, I think identity is so fascinating for mm -hmm. you. You're doing a lot of speaking now. And as you think about yourself as a speaker and how you go in, you deliver that talk. And you, what I heard from you is you hope it's a, a snowball effect and, and you maybe inspire someone or you get them to think a little differently and then someone else comes on and hopefully they positively impact them. But what is your mindset when you show up on stage or on zoom or wherever you are to deliver a message to an audience? It's a, it's a different thing. And, you know, we talk about what we are. I would tell you I'm a good 80% coach, by the way. <laughs> the coach B, I, I'll never, ever um, want that to go away. But what I try to do is a little bit different. I am not trying to be a business person in high heels walking out in a suit. Uh, that's not my style. Um, I've been known to wear a leather jacket and tights and, you know, warrior mode and, you know, a different feel to the whole thing. I I do keynotes, corporate likes keynotes a lot. I am not a keynote fan, just so you know. I, I like to speak and talk for 20, 25 minutes and then right away get into engagement, which is on stage, sitting down, questions, conversation, and really breaking things down because I think you have to hear the questions that people have. I've been on Zooms with teams. That was extraordinary. Um, an hour and 20 minutes on a Zoom because the women on the basketball team decided that they, they were gonna ask the most incredible questions that blew me away. Um, so I'm trying to get a more of a collaborative Q&A situation. And I firmly believe that nobody wants a keynote 40 minutes, nobody wants that. You know, nobody wants that. It, you wanna get, but don't get me wrong, I've done it, okay? I've, I've done it, but I'm really trying to transform myself into a way that's kind of that informal grassroots, let's get down to the nitty gritty here. And so people will say things and ask me things comfortably, I guess. So we call this podcast Intentional Performers. I'm, I'm curious, is there anything you intentionally do to remain healthy? We've talked about some of the pain uh, that, that you've experienced. Is there anything you do daily, weekly, monthly, annually to ensure that you are as healthy as you possibly can be? Absolutely. Um, I swim probably five or six times a week. Uh, the pool is a nice escape for me. It's great for my brain health. 
I think about a lot of things when I swim, ruminate a lot, let it kind of all flow out. And when I get out of the pool, I just, I, I'm in such a different space than when I was uh, prior. I lift weights because I believe in that for osteoporosis, for feeling good about your body. Um, I play tennis, I play golf, not a lot. Golf is too long right now. It takes too long to do that. Um, and I'm pretty busy, but I'm a big uh, believer in tennis. And um, I moved up to a 4.0, just so you know, that's, I went from a 2.5 to a 4.0. So that's significant progress there. Um, and I coach, really- coach my <laughs> first, my first internship. So I went to school for sports psychology. My first internship, one of my first internships was at a country club in California with women tennis players. And so I learned that dynamic to this day. It's one of the most fascinating dynamics is the USTA ratings and people moving up and there's some drama. There was some drama there. And I, I think I managed it all right. They didn't, they didn't kick me out of the program. So um, they loved you. Yeah. They, 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 I mean, Ryan, they loved you. And um, I think that uh, that's funny you say that because the drama pieces. Oh my gosh. I never I mean, saw anything like it. <laughs> it was amazing. I've worked with, I've worked with pro teams. I've worked with, you know, college teams, men, women, all, all different, you know, types of sports teams, name a sport. I, I've worked with them all that, that country club tennis women, I'm telling you, it was, they would pull me aside and, you know, have a conversation. And I got into all kinds of interesting things. It prepared me tremendously uh, for the work I do today, but you were about to say you, you like to read as well. I think before I cut you off. Oh yeah. I read all sorts of books. I mean, you can imagine I I'm, I'm terrible though. I, I kind of get into one book and then go into another book. And so I need to make sure I go to completion and I make sure I read some, like what I call non-academic fun stuff, you know, that, I mean, that just, uh, Kristen Hanna, you know, she, oh, that firefly fly lane. It, it's a good, it's a, it's, it was a great fun book to read. Like, so I kind of, I kind of do the balance there. And, um, and that's about, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of boring. I mean, I don't, I don't have crazy things I do, but I, of course I, I see a therapist regularly. Um, the irony of that is that when I came to the triangle, this is before I shared my uh, disorder with anyone, I got my therapist and never told her anything about my disorder. I just got my therapist to talk about uh, coaching at Duke and the challenges of coming to the triangle, uh, following a fabulous coach, Gail Gustin Kors, you know, incredible work that she did at Duke. And I was in a new situation because it was not a rebuild like Maine was or Michigan State was not a rebuild, but to, you know, to elevate. But Duke, of course, had had incredible success. And so there was a huge challenge that I wanted to have. And it was significant. That challenge was really hard. And so anyway, I got a therapist for that reason. And then later, I mean, years later, told the therapist, okay, by the way, I'm, I have bipolar disorder. <laughs> What was your, what was your therapist's reaction to that? Oh, she just smiled and looked at me and, and said, well, good to, you know, that's a good thing. I mean, it, you know, you don't, this happened in Michigan state too. I went back, you know, I, I, I didn't tell anyone there, but after we played in the national championship, I told a friend and he was a psychiatrist, he's a psychiatrist and he was blown away because I mean, he didn't know, right? I mean, people, people, there's just so many things we don't know about people and that's why we can't make judgment on them. 
We don't know. You don't know anybody until you spend some time with them. And so that our society needs to get better at that. I almost want to just end it there, but I have one more important question. But I, that's just such a beautiful, beautifully said. I, I work with people for a living, highly successful people. And people have no idea in, in any direction, like what is going on. What we present to the outside world is often just very different than what our inside world is presenting. And so I, it's a gift for me that I get to have access to that on a regular basis. And I try not to take that lightly. Um, we've talked about, about a lot about labels during this conversation. And before we started, I saw you have your hands up and look, look like there were some labels on your wrists. Um, <laughs> so I see, yeah, there's, there's two tattoos on coaches inside of a wrist. So what do those say? Um, well, I became a Christian later in life and came to faith when I didn't have faith before, I guess. And this is a New Testament, John 14, 27. And this is the idea of peace. Peace be with you. Peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you peace. Do not let, let your heart be troubled. Do not let it be afraid. Okay. So much of my life, I've been afraid, afraid of who I am, afraid of how to share it, afraid that people would find out afraid that they would use it against me. Fear. Okay. Fear. A whole lot of fear. It's the number one word in the Bible. Fear. Okay. This is Old Testament. New Testament, Old Testament. This is Esther 414. And if you read the book of Esther, I relate to the book of Esther. It's very hard to read. The Old Testament's very hard to read. And um, such a time as this. When the, the symbolically... For me, Joanne, such a time as this to now step up and be who you are. And so when I get fearful, I rub them together like this. And what I would say to people is I'm, that's, I'm sharing you something very personal. I don't think faith is different for so many people. And what I would share with people about faith is it's your own journey, number one. There's no judgment on anything that you believe as you work through it, um, number two. And if you're interested, the Bible is a great academic book. If, if somebody says I'm agnostic or atheist, I get that. Okay, that's that. But the book itself, <laughs> read the book. I mean, there, there are just, you know, there are different ways to present that. Um, so believe it or not, yes, Coach P has two tattoos. And they, they, they and that, by the way, I think you have to be, I joke about this. I feel like you should be over 50 before you get a tattoo. And I'm joking about this. I'm not judging anyone. My only point is it takes that long to figure out what you would tattoo. <laughs> and that label, that label, you know, you mentioned fear and this question might take a, a few seconds for you to digest, but if you think about what's the opposite of fear, what comes to mind for you? Aspiration, uh, dreaming, aspiring, um, being courageous, you know, courage, uh, bravery, um, and just, I, and I would say peace, peace. Hmm. It was, I heard like coaching their aspirational, go get it. And then it was like, it moved into courage and, and I actually was thinking courage. I was curious to get your thoughts on courage, but it's cool where you settled there. You settled on, you settled on peace, which is pretty cool answer. Uh, coach, 
if people want to learn more about what you're up to, I can't wait to see this foundation get up and running and anything I can do to support, help it. Um, let's chat. Let's see what I can do to, to help you make this come to fruition. Um, but if people want to know about you as a speaker, obviously we have a lot of executives that listen to this, this podcast. And then there's a lot of people in the sports world too, um, that listen to it. That's the intersection that I'm in. And so that's the intersection of our audience. So if there is a general manager or an athletic director or a head coach or a CEO, uh, or a chief human resources officer that's listening to this and they're interested in bringing you in to talk to their organization, what's the best way for them to do that? And where can people find out more about what you're up to and the mission? This is your opportunity to self-promote. I'd love it if you would <laughs> lean into it. Um, and let's, let's get you out there and, and have okay. you share your message with the world. Yes. Um, I'm an author of two books, Secret Warrior and Choice Not Chance. So there are two books out there on Amazon that reflect Coach P if people would like to get those. Secret Warrior is some a book I feel should be in many hands. Students, student athletes, old, young, it doesn't discriminate. It's a mental health story. It's a journey. What I'm trying to do is let people know that, yes, you can be afflicted. You can have brain issues and they are not fun, but you can coach in a national championship. You can go to a final four. You can, you know, you can do all these amazing things along the way and deal with that journey. So that's, that's what I'm trying to share as a coach, as a speaker, I'm very different because I don't know if there are many coaches out there that have coached in a national title and have bipolar disorder. I think I might be a monopoly on that market. We look at um, continuum. So if people say, well, we don't, we don't have bipolar people. Of course, everyone does. And many people are undiagnosed, which is truly sad. So from there, we're looking at the continuum of anxiety and depression, all those things. You can find me on Coach P for Life. It's the number four. So it's Coach P for Life. That's because I'm a final four coach. And I'm proud of that. All social. You can DM me. Let me know. Um, get in touch. I, there's a process. I have an agency that represents me. Um, and that's, you know, that's makes it very easy as far as I'm concerned, because they handle everything and they can get me where I need to be. And also every talk I do is designed for the place I'm at. I do not have a cookie cutter. Okay. We, we, we look into this a little bit about the community to make sure we can make maximum impact. I have a website, coachp4life.org. So people can check that out. And I think that's, all the selling. I think I'm, I think I'm selling and I hope you're sold. <laughs> you crushed it. That's, that's what we wanted. So it's interesting. We could do a whole nother podcast on this idea of self-promotion because look, we all shriek when we see it. I get it. I, when someone is just out to make a buck and, and I'm pro capitalism, I'm like, Hey, if you want to make money, go make money. I think the shrieking comes from when they're coming in with one message and then they're going out the back door with a different message. So when they're not being authentic and genuine, so I could see how people that are talking about mental health and the importance of it, and perhaps they're doing that um, without letting people know that they're also benefiting in this way or that way. For me, at least, I'm on a mission to do well and do good. And I think we can do both in this world. And I hope we all uh, aspire for that. If that's what you aspire for, for me, it's important to do well and it's important to do good. And, and I'm trying to do as 
as well as I can on, on both of those. Um, I play on social as well. So Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And I once had a podcast producer who told me that, Hey, Brian, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you at the end of your podcast? So mm-hmm. I am doing my part as well. And lastly, you can listen to all these great conversations at strongskills.co uh, slash podcast. We've been fortunate to have a lot of other coaches and a lot of I think highly interesting people. Um, but coach, this has been great. I look forward to meeting you at some point. Um, and hopefully we can get you up to DC for some speaking gigs and, and we can break bread and maybe we'll go to an Italian restaurant. I'll take you, I'll find a great Italian restaurant. I just got back from Italy. So I I drank a lot of wine, ate a lot of pasta. We had, we had a good time, but, um, appreciate you coming on and and sharing your thoughts. Listen, thank you so much for having me. And I hope we have that time to break bread. That would be terrific. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. If somebody's going to do such a thing and take their life, it's very hard to stop them. I'm going to tell you that right now. It's, it's hard to stop them. It's a very aggressive act. People need to be able to say that. It's a very aggressive act to do that, right? I mean, it's an aggressive act to kill a human being. I don't care who they It's an aggressive act. That needs to be talked about more. And then on top of it, can we derail kids? It's like derailing them. If they're on a train, can we take them off their path for long enough for somebody else to derail? So it's not anybody, no no one's standing up and saying, okay, we can stop suicide, we can prevent it. Okay, that's why I don't like the prevent suicide thing. You can't, you cannot prevent it. But boy, and I know what they mean, they kind of mean the same thing, but that, prevents a very strong word there, right? It's, you can derail. So the individuals that came up to me after talks, I can say to them, you're awesome. You know, think about it. And I can ask them, you know, I can say, what made you, what, you know, what got you to say that? I can say a lot of things to them, but then they walk off over campus. And then somebody else makes contact in some way. So it, so it snowballs in the right direction.